0: Staying in touch and finding your way in space, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Badri Yunus says a spacecraft that can't communicate or that doesn't know where it is and where it's going isn't much good to anyone he should know Badri is a NASA Deputy Associate Administrator and the Program Manager of SCAN, Spacecraft Communications and Navigation. Wait till you hear about some of the amazing networks and technologies that SCAN is working with and that every NASA spacecraft and many others depend on. SCAN is also working on the bleeding edge of technology, including the wild and crazy field of quantum entanglement. I'm always happy to welcome back Bruce Betts. This time, his WhatsApp segment will feature four haiku inspired by our light sail, solar sail. You know the problem with Apple podcasts? I can hardly ever tell who has left us a nice review. I mean, who the heck is Wendy Surf and Black Dog Forever and Dr. Double E? I just want to say thank you. I hope you'll consider joining them. It only takes a minute, but it's the easiest and cheapest thing you can do to give planetary radio a boost. You'll hear me mention to Badry that we expected astronauts to return from the International Space Station. Well, it happened according to plan. They rode Crew Dragon Endeavour to a safe splashdown in the Atlantic Ocean. That was Crew 2. The launch of Crew 3 is imminent, as we publish this week's show. Over in the Downlink, you can learn how to help rovers on Mars. NASA needs citizen scientists who can train an algorithm that will enable Curiosity, the Mars Science Laboratory, to do a better job of finding its way across the red planet. The opportunity is called AI for Mars, and you can learn about it in the November 5 edition of our newsletter at planetary.org downlink. While you're there, you can lose yourself in a dying red giant star. The Hubble image is simply beautiful. You've probably heard about the Deep Space Network, that globe-spanning system of giant dishes that allows us to receive data from across the solar system. But what about the Near Space Network, and the tracking and data relay satellites, and the Laser Communications Relay Demonstration, the Deep Space Atomic Clock, or NASA's Commercial Communications Services Division. I could go on, but I'd be cutting into the time we have for the person who leads these and other efforts. Badri Yunus is a world-renowned expert in telecommunications. As you'll hear, his passion for his work extends far beyond the networks and technologies he manages. He couldn't wait to tell me about the outreach work SCAN conducts, especially for students and young professionals. Audrey Yunus, thank you very much for uh, joining us on Planetary Radio. I've been told for ages that uh, I should really get you as a guest on the show because of the work of the uh, part of NASA, SCAN, that uh, you lead, uh, which I hope we're going to be talking about uh, many facets of over the next few minutes. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So much of the work of your part of NASA, SCAN, underlies everything else that we talk about on planetary radio, at least everything that happens in space that we talk about. I'll start with the one that maybe is the best known by the general public, and that's the DSN, the Deep Space Network, which never fails to amaze those of us who see what it does as it communicates with spacecraft as far away as Voyager but with so many spacecraft coordinating all of the exchange of data with spacecraft really now across the solar system, it's quite an operation.
1: Yeah, it's uh, we have a very uh, extensive and world-class operation, uh, supported missions, whether they are in deep space or in the near-Earth environment. Uh, for deep space, we have uh, a set of uh, ground stations distributed around the globe we have three of them two of them are in the upper hemisphere and one in the lower hemisphere they are our eyes and ears they look deep into the uh, into space to the edge of the uh, solar system and beyond you mentioned voyager 1 and voyager 2 they have already crisscrossed the boundaries of our solar system uh, they are uh, tens of billions of miles away you know and we are still communicating with them we have sets of, you know, different sets of antennas, uh, varying in size between 34 and 70 meters. The 70 meter are so huge; they, these are our Eiffel towers. Um, they have <laughs> been around for, for decades, providing support to all kind of missions that have crisscrossed the heaven. For the near Earth, we have uh, two different kind of networks. One of them is uh, relies on direct. Transmission to the ground and one uh, relies on using space at the data relaying point where missions will instead of sending the, the, the data directly to the ground because they may not be uh, in view of the ground station, so they send it to a point way up in space, and that point in space will in turn relay the data back to a specific point
0: on Earth. Are you talking about TDRS, the the tracking and data relay satellites?
1: Exactly. The, the concept of TDRS came about in the early 70s. Uh, remember when we were supporting the Apollos, we had so many stations, ground stations distributed around, the, gro- uh, around the, the globe. Many of them uh, you know, are in countries uh, where the geopolitical situation does not allow us uh, to go there anymore. Even back mm-hmm. then, we had a lot of problems. Up to 30 stations were distributed on land and in water, to provide support to the Apollo mission, and even with that, we could not exceed the thirty percent support for that mission. Oh. Uh, so uh, we came up with a concept instead of uh, you know uh, relying on direct to Earth communications. Let's have these points in space where they they have everything underneath the geosynchronous arc in view. You can provide near real time uh, communication anywhere at any time, 100% of
0: the time. There's a question that just occurred to me, and I don't know if you have a good answer for this, but is there a way to characterize the amount of data, the number of bits that SCAN facilitates across the systems that you coordinate, like TDRS, like the Deep Space Network? I mean, we're talking about a lot of bits here, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we are talking tens of terabits, if not terabyte per day,
0: Wow. It definitely oh, per day. varies
1: per day. <laughs> so when you take, you talk about terabytes per day. Usually, you look at the book. How many bytes are in a book? Are there like a million? Then you are talking um, a million books, worth of data that go uh, that go through our system on a daily basis. Wow. Uh, you know, I don't know. I've never tried to quantify the content of the Library of Congress in terms of uh, byte, But if I have to do that, probably we are that, at that level on a daily basis. My God. Okay, and I'm glad I asked. One of the critical functions that really I value so much is our outreach program. Getting uh, as, uh, as early as possible to our youth and trying to sensitize them to, 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 to the value of science uh-huh. and technology and mathematics, and uh, you know, and even engineering, and even art, everything completes everything in the build-up of the space story. We work with the with with youth to sensitize them to that, and to really to ensure that they uh, they see things from our perspective to help them grow as people, and also later on, or potentially professionally, uh, as they go to college and beyond in helping them uh, decide on what discipline they need to pursue. And we have a very strong program within SCAN, as well as the agency, you know, to have uh, very good uh, STEAM objectives. And we are all working collectively to uh, have our youth benefit from that program.
0: Well, your colleague Al Feinberg, who connected the two of us, told me that if I mentioned your work with young people, that you would definitely want to pursue that. So I was going to save more of this to the end of the conversation, but let's let's talk about it now. In the programs that you offer, I know you have internships, yep, and apparently these offer a lot of great real-world uh, experience. For does it start at the undergraduate level or even younger than that? much even even much younger.
1: I, I take people f- from high school uh, all the way to postgraduate uh, level and try to sensitize them to some of the critical discipline that are needed in the communication domain as well as other sci- uh, scientific domain. We used to have something, the fresh out initiative. I used to take uh, a student right fresh out of school and put them in our labs for about three years to mm-hmm. do nothing else but to work behind the bench. They needed that experience. Very often, they graduate from school and they don't get that their hands dirty. I yeah. wanted them to learn how to fail and how to recover what else may happen behind the bench.
0: Ha- teach them how to solder while you're at it.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and to get the pleasure of making things happen.
0: There's one other program that I got to mention because... Yeah. I think it goes back to even before I started doing planetary radio, which was 19 years ago, but I was already at the Planetary Society. And I went out to Apple Valley uh, in Southern California because there was a big event going on. And I took my video camera and I talked to some kids who were sitting behind consoles actually working with dishes at Goldstone, one of your three Deep Space Network uh, facilities, of course. Uh, The Goldstone Apple Valley Radio Telescope Program. Uh, And I made this feature, like I said, many years ago. It wasn't until I started preparing for this show that I saw that you have also a visitor center, not at Goldstone, but in Barstow, the nearby desert town where everybody stops on the way to Las Vegas to, you know, get a hamburger or something. There's a Harvey House there, which was, if anybody wants to see a, uh, an interesting old movie, it's called The Harvey Girls with Judy Garland. <laughs> One of the Harvey Houses has now been repurposed in part by by you as a visitor center. I'm told that these programs for these kids out there in the desert, that that continues as well.
1: Yeah, and what you were talking about is our Gavert uh, program where we take some of our antenna dishes, and we repurpose them to support radio astronomy. And we work uh, you know, with uh, universities and other students to have access and to do their research in this area. At every location where we have a ground station, we have like a visitor center, a way uh, that we pay back the community that hosts our ground station to pay them back with the, uh, with the kind of uh, activities that can help them and help their children to grow.
0: Well, we are very much with you on that, as you might imagine, since we're the Planetary Society uh, (laughs) and our our leader is in that business of communicating science. Let me turn back now to those transformational technologies that uh, that you hinted at. One of them, I I called it brilliant. It was a little pun because we're talking about optical or laser communication, which I believe SCAN is doing a lot of work with. Uh, Do you see optical as... The next great leap in getting information across the solar system and from from orbit down to Earth and up again,
1: definitely. We have been evolving. You know, we started in the UHF, we moved into the S band, we moved into the K band, the Ka band, and you know, the demand for spectrum it's growing exponentially. We can take a quantum leap by going into something where the amount of spectrum is so huge and can meet uh, the needs of our uh, scientists as well as uh, the needs of uh, our society, which is the optical domain. You have a huge bandwidth available to you, and the implementation of the technology comes at a a good price and a good swap value. The optical payload can provide you up to two-order magnitude better performance uh, or capability than uh, the RF uh, payload Wow so a so
0: hundred times better a hundred times better bandwidth. Yeah, exactly than the
2: mm.
1: uh, up to up to a hundred times better much of the uh, radio frequency is regulated and so many walls have been have been built between different communities the optical domain has not been, regulated, and provide a common domain where all of these communities can interoperate. Whether you are doing uh, space research, whether you are doing Earth observation, this is a common spectrum where they can all interoperate and share that information. Mm. And you can trade that in terms of data rate or in terms of size and, uh, and, and power, the swap value we call it.
0: We know that there are uh, many agencies around the world, international agencies, that are beginning to do quantum research. The area that Einstein called spooky action at a distance. uh, Do you see potential for using entangled particles uh, that are so truly spooky and mysterious to to actually uh, facilitate communication or other purposes?
1: Yeah and uh, you know we are working not just alone we are working with many other government agencies we are forming in partnership even with the commercial sector if we didn't find a potential for it we wouldn't have explored it but we mm. demonstrated so many things in the lab the space provides the uh, the best avenue uh for uh, provide for enabling quantum communication Because on the ground, if you are to communicate using fiber optics and whatever uh, other means, you experience a lot of losses and you need to regenerate the signal more often and you may end up uh, losing that entangled state between uh, the two entangled photons. There is nothing magical. It's physics, you know, what we are doing. (laughs) And we are pushing the boundaries of physics. Uh, I don't know how far we are going to go. Will we be able to break through the existing laws of physics? That's something to be demonstrated. All we are doing now is trying to demonstrate that it can be done using uh, engineering capability and uh, the kind of technology that will, uh, you know, will take us further into physics. And sooner or later, we are going to potentially hit a hit a ceiling. And mm-hmm. what are we going to do as humanity? Uh, you know, need to keep on growing. We'll definitely need to break through. Where will that take us? I'm not going to speculate at this point. <laughs>
0: Absolutely fascinating, though, uh, to hear about. I suppose, in a sense, all communication uh, that relies on photons, including radio frequency, is quantum communication, because we are talking about photons. More classical physics, exactly. Yes. We haven't even gotten to the navigation side, the N in scan. There's one particular project that I want to ask you about, because it's one that we featured on Planetary Radio back in... June of 2019, when uh, the deep space atomic clock got launched into orbit, it, it went up on the Falcon Heavy, the same rocket that took our light sail 2. Yeah. They're both still up there. Is that test now complete and has it, has it proven itself?
1: Definitely the stability of the clock is so critical in, the, in any operation. The atomic clock was designed to provide us 2 Order magnitude, a hundred times better performance than the GPS clock.
0: You know, there's that two orders of magnitude.
1: And, <laughs> magnitude. and we definitely uh, have demonstrated and achieved that goal. So now we are working on trying to miniaturize the technology and, and, and improve it. We've demonstrated it now uh, to uh, operationalize the technology by making it uh, a little bit smaller to fit on. Any size uh, spacecraft, it's so critical because it reduces the time that that you need to be in contact uh, with the spacecraft because the clock is stable. Everything is so, so stable about it. You don't need to communicate with it on a regular basis to provide correction. And, I see. Uh, yeah. So that's you know the clock stability is so critical. Uh, you know, in uh, in navigating through uh, through space
0: and deep space in particular. Thank you for taking us through the work of SCAN. Matt, thank
1: you for having me. Uh, Sometimes we wonder why do they pay us? We should be paying the agency (laughs) for working there because really NASA has given us the opportunity to grow and to implement our dreams.
0: Audrey Yunus is the Deputy Associate Administrator, the guy who runs SCAN for NASA Space Communications and Navigation and uh, has been doing this work for a long time. Thanks again, Audrey.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you, Matt, for having me on your radio talk.
0: Bruce Betts, what's up? And those haiku are a minute away. This is Planetary Radio.
1: Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, Really, any creative activity that's space related. We invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connectplanetary.org. That's connectplanetary.org. Thanks! From missions arriving at Mars to new frontiers in human spaceflight, 2021 has been an exciting year for space science and exploration. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. What were your favorite moments? You can cast your vote right now at planetary.org slash best of 2021 and help choose the year's best space images, mission milestones, memes, and more. That's planetary.org slash best of 2021. Thanks.
0: Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here he is, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. It's Bruce Betts, back once again with a beautiful night sky and some other fun stuff for us. Welcome. Hey there. Hi there. Ho there, Matt. Are you as happy
2: as can be? We go to the night sky, and I'm just going to be boring you every week talking about look over in the west for the next few weeks. Venus, super bright, looking stunning, and to its upper left, you will see dimmer Saturn, yellowish, and bright Jupiter. Jupiter and Saturn closing in on Venus. It'll stay in a similar position for a few weeks, while the others close in and make a lovely planetary line. In the pre-dawn, you're going to have to get a good view to the east, and you might be able to check out Mars, but it'll get a lot easier to see and a lot brighter coming up. And that's your summary of the night sky. That was quick. Did you want more? You're the sky master. Well, okay, look look farther over, in, kind of in the south. There's a star that's not a planet. It's not near any other bright star. It's near plenty of stars. That's Fomalhaut, which I don't know how to pronounce, <laughs> but I enjoy saying Fomalhaut. Pumahat. That's what it is. It's just hanging out there, kind of on its own in terms of bright stars. All right, that's enough. Now we move on to this week in space history. 1969, Apollo 12 launched, headed to the moon with the second human landing. And in 2014, the Philae lander became the first lander to land on a comet. Comet 67P, that was uh, the target of the Rosetta-Philae
0: mission. More of a first to bounce on a comet, from what I'm told, that had those funny little screw feet that didn't work. uh, Or maybe they did work, but the comet was just too, the material was too loose.
2: I think you had to take the old uh, Air Force adage, anything you can walk away from is good landing. (laughs) Anything where your humans find you eventually is a good landing in spacecraft. And they they did achieve that. And they got some science. We move on to random
0: space fact. That was the most magnificent rendition in in a long time. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Compliment for today. Insult for the past. So... (laughs) The DART mission, the Double Asteroid Redirect Test, which I know you've had on talking about recently on Space Policy Edition, might be talking more about, launches in a couple weeks, slams a spacecraft into an asteroid, a double asteroid, slams into the smaller component dimorphous. It's going kind of fast. How fast is it? It's going 6.6 kilometers per second, or about 4.1 miles per second when it slams in. To the uh, asteroid and uh, vaporizes and causes the asteroid to change its orbit just a wee bit, but enough that we can measure it in a first planetary defense
0: asteroid redirect test. How fast is it? Oh, I missed my cue. I'm sorry. I was way off.
2: <laughs> what I'm is what is up, up with you? What what, what, <laughs> is, what what is up
0: with your timing? Our friend Nancy Chabot is uh, going to be back next week. Just oh, good. a week prior to the launch, she is the coordination lead for DART at the Applied Physics Lab, uh, Johns Hopkins University, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting that uh, pre-launch review of the mission from her.
2: Yeah, it's a great mission, and she'll be great talking about it. Uh, we, shall we move on to the trivia contest? I asked you, who was the first person to fly two orbital space missions? how do we do, Matt? Well,
0: the response was lower than usual. I don't know why, but we also, not only was quantity off, quality was off. A lot of people got confused by this one, and they're going to accuse you of being the the tricky chief scientist that you are. Uh, (laughs) Here is what I believe is the correct answer from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. Gordon Cooper went to space and orbited the heavens, flying in his Mercury the right stuff called Faith 7. Two years later, Cooper flew, his Gemini was nice, and so became the first of all to orbit Terra twice.
2: That is correct. Gordo. Gordon Cooper. Um. So how was I tricky? You included the word
0: orbital, first to make two orbital flights. Well,
2: if they listened to the show, I spazzed out and said, orbital. Okay, maybe I didn't.
0: But maybe on the contest page, I should have uh, as well. Uh, you know, the the the, the uh, visible uh, version of that, because a lot of people said Gus Grissom. Well, Gus Grissom's first flight, Mercury Four, as you well know, was a suborbital. Tricky, tricky. <laughs> well, in spite of that, a lot of people still got it right. Among them, first time winner. Patrick Emerson. Congratulations, and Patrick. Also from Kansas, by the way, who indeed said it was Gordo Cooper. First was uh, Mercury 9, 1963. Second was Gemini 5 in 1965. Patrick, we're going to be sending you that uh, Safe and Sane Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. Congratulations. Congratulations. What do you got for next time?
2: I asked you, who was the first person to fly two orbital space missions? We just discussed that extensively. Well, in a weird twist, today I'm going to ask you, who was the first Soviet cosmonaut to fly two orbital space missions? Go to
0: planetary.org slash radio contest. You have this time until Wednesday, November 17 at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And we will uh, award the winner one of those Planetary Society kick-asteroid rubber asteroids. But wait, there's more, as Bruce is fond of saying. We had an auction at the Planetary Society not too long ago, and among the items auction was the chance to have your haiku read during the What's Up segment of Planetary Radio. The winning bid in that portion of the auction was uh, put forward by Lee Schulteis, and uh, we have some haiku from Lee. Lee, thank you so much for your support, but also for these uh, haiku, which are all light sail inspired, although he points out they also apply to regular uh, uh, ocean-going sailing ships as well. Here's the first of them. It has always been that each time a sail unfurls, a new world opens. Good start. You want the next one? Sure.
2: The golden light streams, the blue oceans move below. The silver sail
0: fills. I guess that's definitely us. That's light sail for sure, silver sails. Okay, here's number three. Every adventure and tale of glory begins with an open sail. And finally,
2: We have always sailed on a power around us that we cannot see.
0: Yeah, bravo, bravo, bravo. Thank you very much, Lee Schulteist. Thank you for your support. Now I think we're done.
2: All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about the farthest place on Earth that you visited relative to where you live now. Thank you, and good night.
0: Huh. For me, I'm going to guess that's either Delhi or Agra, India. What about you?
2: I think uh, Australia. Australia would almost certainly do it for me.
0: Keep thinking about that kind of stuff. He is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. Why? Because we like him. That's Bruce Betts, and he joins us every week for What's Up. (laughs) Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who love to communicate their love of space exploration. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra.